This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the world of vaccines, Carol. Yeah, let's do it. Because, you know, I want to say big picture, and I feel like you talked about this with Steve Schwartzman uh, of Blackstone earlier. We've seen, Jason, a lot of investor intention on the drug and biotech space this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. And one stock in this space that is up uh, roughly 70% this year is a small publicly held biotech company. It's based in New York City. So let's get into it with Dr. Jeremy Eleven, CEO at Ovid Therapeutics. Uh, He's also chairman and he's chair of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. He's on the phone from New York City. Jeremy, uh, oh, forgive me. He's on the phone from Connecticut. Uh, Jeremy, nice to have you here with us. Um, First of all, tell us a little bit about specifically what your company does, because from what I understand, you guys really focus on rare neuro- neurological diseases. Carol, so good of you to have me on the, on the phone, actually. Uh, the company is developing first-in-class medicines to treat rare disorders of the brain in children who have no other medicines. Examples are Angelman's disease, Fragile X, these are lifelong disorders, and there are absolutely no medicines for them. And we're about to deliver the results for the final phase of testing in Angelman, the first and only medicine that's actually in clinical trials at this stage. So that's one thing we do. And the other one is we're working with Takeda, a terrific partnership. And Takeda and ourselves are developing a medicine that we hope will not only stop epileptic seizures, but also heal the brain, a whole new concept behind epilepsy. And so, you know, you're also the chair of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Dr. Levin. And I do wonder beyond what you guys are working on, you have a view of the entire landscape here. And Carol mentioned this, this idea that obviously all eyes are on the vaccine world. What's realistic? What should we be thinking about when it comes to actually getting a vaccine for COVID-19? Jason, really good question. At the beginning of the year, there were two programs on therapeutics in the whole of the United States. Right now, they're close to 600, of which 150 plus are vaccines. Another nearly 200 are medicines that are going to attack the, uh, the virus. And then there's a whole series of things where we're trying current treatments to see how actually they might work, current existing medicines. I, I have to tell you, there's a lot of us, something is going to come out of this. Now, with regard to the vaccines, they're very promising signs from a company, Moderna, another very promising signs out of a Oxford University. But these are difficult things to develop. And until you see how they raise the immunity of individuals, you really don't know what you've got. But I'm optimistic because there's a lot of them on the on the table right now. And I'm also optimistic because we're seeing good early preclinical, that means before human data, that suggests they have a good shot of working. So our understanding, too, is that it's going to be a combination of things. 
um, Dr. Levin, that need to be done. In other words, you're going to have a vaccine, right? That's the, the holy grail. But you also need, as you said, there's like 200 med- medicines to attack the virus for it, whether it's a mild case, a moderate case, or a severe case, that we're going to need all of this to get our, our head around it. But I mean, ultimately, is it we need a vaccine to really kind of get back to normal. And then what is the realistic timeline? Is it end of the year, beginning of next year? Carol, there are no magic bullets right now. Quite right. You have to have a combination. And this is very similar to many other diseases. Realistically, I think we should be cautious and talk about the beginning of next year being reasonably practical. And that's all you know, all down to one, getting good results now, and then two, with the support, which has been terrific of the FDA and manufacturing. Those are three different things, good results, FDA, and good manufacturing. We can hopefully get something next year. But but can I just add, I just want to follow. I mean, it's not a case of just getting the vaccine. You've got to be able to manufacture it, right, on a huge scale. Exactly. You've got to be able to develop millions and millions of doses, and then you have to distribute them. That's why we should feel really good about J&J stepping in and putting the power of their manufacturing on the table. AstraZeneca linking up with Oxford University and putting the power of their manufacturing on the table. No manufacturing, no vaccines. So what do we worry about here, Dr. Levin? I mean, is, is the worry on the science or is the worry on the execution once we have the right science? It's both, actually. This is drug discovery and drug development and vaccine development is a non-trivial industry. It's really tough. So in the science side, we have a good understanding about COVID-19 because of what we learned in, uh, in SARS and previously. We have a good understanding. What we don't yet know is how, when you give the vaccine, will you get the right kind of immune response? And, and it's important to say that there is no adverse events that occur with that vaccine. That's number one. On the manufacturing side, this is scale. Once you've got that vaccine, the FDA has been fantastic. The FDA has really gone overboard to try and make sure that they've streamlined all the processes to get it to the manufacturing plant. But these plants are very sophisticated. They are often need to be revamped, rebuilt, and both reps of both sides of both the science and the manufacturing have to come to bear at the same time. So it's a very important set of steps that have to occur. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's what's so tricky and, and any you know, the human testing, I mean this is it's essentially a completely new vaccine. I know I've, I've heard folks talk about, you know, we're going to build on something that's already there. So I just do wonder in terms of the extensive testing, certainly when it comes to, you know, people trials, we've just got to make sure it's, it's safe. So I do wonder, you know, it's not something you can rush through, correct? That's correct, Carol. But, you know, this is like any medicine. You don't rush it through. You, the whole principle about medicine is do no harm principle number one number two you have to there are sorry you do actually have opportunity to use learning some things we have from the past right so for example we did polio vaccines we've done we have multiple different vaccines which we developed you have terrific vaccines that came out of Merck for uh, for shingles and terrific vaccines also for herpes really so we know we have lots of building blocks it's getting the right building blocks put together 
and then making sure that when you put them into a human being, they give you the right reaction, not the wrong reaction. So understanding uh, all of this as well as you do, Dr. Levin, what do we do in the meantime? I mean, we're all, you know, sort of in this phase of reopening in some form or another, but what's realistic and sensible behavior here? Jason, I've taken on the role of coordinating opening up in my region of, of Connecticut. And so I really, first of all, it's terribly important we get back to some form of economic life that people can feed their families. Very important. In my region, 25% of families are out of work. They need to get back. They need to earn their living. Number one, testing is critical. Everybody should be tested. Number two, social distancing should be maintained. Number three, we should be wearing masks. These are, these are ABCs. This is not something that's difficult to understand. The medicines will come. The vaccines will come. But in the meantime, being responsible is about the most important thing one can do here. But starting with testing, distancing, and in addition to that, making sure that you've got your mask on when you're with others. And this is the one that I find baffling is because Jason and I have had a lot of folks like yourself from uh, the pharmaceutical biotech and certainly the medical community that it's all about testing and tracing and that everyone should be tested and that we're still not moving forward on that. And is it just a case we don't have the tests? Um, I know we talked with Bill Hazelstein, um, Hazel, Hazeltine, excuse me, and he talked about the importance of really almost having an organization on the scale of like a military so that you could, you have, you know, uniform procedures. Is that what's holding us back? Bill, Bill is 100% correct. You need to have an organized approach. But just imagine, Carol, if you had a kid and that child was in preschool, and one of the kids tested positive, let's say, for example, strep throat. You'd want everybody in that class tested. Right. Everyone. There's no, this is not a strange thing to do. This is normal. If you had kids with measles, you'd want everybody isolated. This is not unusual. So Bill's right. This needs a national organization. The virus doesn't know borders. You, it can hop on a plane and fly from A to B as fast as you can imagine. But if you test people, if you do the right thing and have an organized approach, we can definitely do this. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time and look forward to catching up with you as this story develops, because we know it will. Dr. Jeremy Levin is the CEO and chairman of Ovid Therapeutics. He's also the chair of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. He's the editor of the newly released Biotechnology in the Time of COVID-19 Commentaries from the Frontline. That takes a look at 47 uh, biotech stars who have moved to fighting this disease, Carol, and we have seen that this is a concerted effort, uh, certainly across the world. I mean, even the idea yeah. of, you know, what Steve Schwartzman said, we're not going to go 0 for 130 here. Yeah, the I smartest think that, minds are on this. I think it makes a lot of sense. And as he said, it's 150 plus efforts going just for a vaccine. Then you've got 200 medicines that are being pursued just to attack the virus at different levels. So, you know, it's this kind of multi-tiered of level, uh, you know, a multi-tiered plan that needs to get us ahead of the virus. I think what's interesting is, though, as he said, it comes down to everyone needs to be tested. You got to wear masks and you have to do social distancing. It's really so simple, yet I find it baffling that. But is it? We're, is well, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to be. No. I mean, it is to you and me, but I will tell you um, that, you know, just the conversations I've been having of late, even around my neighborhood, I think around your neighborhood. Yeah, we saw well. it this weekend. There's conflict of people who are like, like, 
do I really have to wear my, like you yeah. know it's like fight fighting over the mask stuff and it's just really tough right yeah and and I think one of the issues is that you know and and Steve Schwartzman alluded to this in our conversation he said this is harder in democracies you know I mean which which is actually a very precise and correct point in the sense that right. the places where this has been in many ways just locked down or maybe not so democratic on the other hand, you've seen it in Germany, you've seen it in the UK, where people just get on with it. They say, okay, I gotta wear a mask, I'm gonna do that. Right. But that's not what we've seen across the US. This is no judgment, this is just an observation that you have people essentially making a political statement or somehow deciding that wearing a mask symbolizes something. And in reality, what wearing a mask symbolizes is that you give a hoot about other people and you want the world to be healthy. Right, exactly. Meantime, you've got the number of new cases around the globe reaching a record, and we're seeing a lot of new cases in Latin America. That's according to the World Health Organization. U.S., Florida's new infections rose to another high, so we're seeing those cases go up. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. And Carol Masser, yes. what a weekend in the political world. I mean, it started Friday night, basically within an hour of us getting off of air, maybe a little bit later, actually, it was like nine o'clock. You know, I just happened to be like reading or doing whatever, catching up on stuff. And all these news alerts start coming out about the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York getting fired. Wait, then we wait, go into wait, the weekend. Wait, he resigned. No, I didn't resign. Yeah, I wait, know. now he got fired. No, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I don't want to leave. I don't want another job at justice. <laughs> it's really sort of amazing. And then obviously a, a weekend chalk filled of the president in Tulsa. Yeah. The uh, big interview that John Bolton gave to ABC about his new book. Let's make sense of all of it with Josh mm -hmm. Wingrove. He is White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone. All right, Josh, we look to you to help us separate the signal from the noise here. What do we need to be thinking about as this work week begins when it comes to the political world? Well, I mean, the president is looking for ways to turn it around. I think that's what we're sort of informing uh, everything. And so he wants loyalists as part of that. And I think that's what we saw with the sort of uh, Friday night moves and the really remarkable to and fro, you know, the guy initially refusing to go and then saying he would go and Barr changing who he wanted to uh, appoint in the interim. And now there's some reporting from Bloomberg uh, that the SEC chairman may not even want this thing, given, you know, all the best of the last 72 hours. So, you know, that one is bubbling, uh, you know, on its own. Uh, the president is uh, also wanting to get, get out and about more and contrast himself with Joe Biden. So we're seeing a lot of interviews today he's doing with regional media. Uh, but he also, in, the, in these situations, doubles down on stuff that he's done before. Uh, for instance, we are seeing some headlines move on the terminal right now about restrictions on visa issuance, sort of America first extension. That'll be bad news for people who are trying to immigrate to the U.S., or I should say at least work in the U.S. because these look like non-immigrant visas. Anyway, uh, he, uh, like I say, back to the playbook, 2016 all over again. Right. You know, 
doubling down on all that media. So that's that's where we're at. The band is back together. This yeah, the band is back together. And this is no doubt about it. Uh, an individual who likes campaigning. We know that uh, he's doing it though this year, um, Josh, with the backdrop of um, John Bolton's new book. It's um, yeah. you know, and we just want to play a little snippet because we know John Bolton spoke with ABC over the weekend and he talked uh, about many things, but he, he also talked about President Trump's pattern looking like an obstruction of justice as a way of life. Let's get into that. To use the phrase in the book that Trump's pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life, which we couldn't accept. Obstruction of justice as a way of life? Look, these were things that I could see some evidence of, and they bothered me greatly. I talked to uh, the attorney general about them. I talked to the counsel to the president about them. I've talked to other members of the cabinet about them. Uh, and uh, relayed my concerns, and they, they were very much on my mind. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. Okay, so a focus. Of course, that's John Bolton, Trump's uh, former national security advisor, President Trump's former national security advisor. Josh, you know, so much has already been reported about what's in that book. I do wonder... Is there something of substance that, as an American citizen, as an American voter who's going to go to the polls in November, that we really should be paying a lot of attention to? Well, uh, I think the, the, his line on everything being through a re-election lens is a big one. But I think the, the thing that strikes me about it is Bolton is not the first to write a book, and he's certainly not the first Trump administration to write some sort of tell-all tell all memoir. He is the highest-ranking one, though. Uh, and you now got a fairly high-profile group of folks who are former senior figures in the president's own administration who've been critical about him in the last, you know, weeks or months. That includes uh, Mr. Bolton, of course, but also Jim Mattis uh, and others. And so I think that is going to cause some consternation among Republicans a little bit. That said, we've talked about this stuff before. Yeah. It tends to blow over. The Senate doesn't look particularly, you know, aghast over the president lately and you know a lot of them just want to keep the majority so uh, you know uh, we'll see we'll see I, I will say though the enthusiasm right now the path forward is a little unclear because we know the president touted a huge rally on saturday the attendance was way less than he expected he's reportedly upset about that the white house is insisting that he was not upset about that and so we don't really know what they're going to do going forward but on this to try to change the channel for Bolton. is it a sign of waning support though among his supporters or is it just well, the polls would in, polls yeah. would indicate that for yeah. sure, for sure. I mean, there's there's there have not been a lot of good polls. What they're saying, this is the positive spin they're putting on it, is that in swing states, so not nationally, in swing states, the president is still competitive against a defined Joe Biden, and that means that they're going to throw everything at the wall to try to make voters think that Joe Biden is a worse choice. Most people in the president's orbit believe that if the pres if the election is about Biden versus Trump, Trump can pull it off. But if they think it's a referendum on Trump and his performance, that is a lot more problematic for the president. And so what do we look for now as sort of the next milestones uh, for the president? He's got another rally, I believe, coming up in, in Arizona. Is that tomorrow, Josh? I mean, is that another is that sort of a reset to the reset? It's not a rally per se, but he is traveling to Arizona. I think we're going to continue to see him go out and about. Arizona presents an interesting one because, as you know, it is arguably the biggest hotspot right now right. in terms of virus cases. They, they have a huge outbreak going on right there. And the president is trying to you know, press ahead and kind of pretend that the virus 
is gone. You know, the, the death rate is what is the new goalposts that they go by are, are lower. But the, America on Saturday recorded like 34,000 new cases. That's the highest total in seven weeks. So, you know, we're not out of this. The president might have to switch gears and kind of acknowledge we're not out of this. Uh, and one way to do that is to get people to act like we still have a pandemic and, you know, wear a mask and stuff. But this White House has shown no interest yeah. in doing that. In fact, today they pulled down a tent that screened media at the White House. You no longer have your temperature checked when you walk into the White House as a reporter. Wow. No kidding. Wow. That's a very interesting uh, inside dish. All right, Josh Wingrove, thank you so much. White House correspondent for Bloomberg joining us on the phone. So much to keep an eye on, and we will continue to, Carol, when it comes wow. to the world of policy and politics. We didn't even get to talk about you know, what may happen with the police reform bills that are sort of making their way through the Congress as well. It's such a conflict, though, right? About, you know, we keep talking about this kind of the tensions of, you know, reopening versus spikes of cases. And and how do we figure this one out? All right. We'll continue to follow. Of course, we will. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's continue our conversation about economics, China, things we've touched on already. Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. This was a topic that came up, not surprisingly, Andy, in my conversation with Steve Schwartzman earlier. We're going to hear a bit about that later on. The U.S.-China relationship is complicated. The relationship between President Trump and President Xi, complicated or not, depending on your perspective. And certainly, uh, John Bolton has a hot take related to that. And I would say broke some news, it feels like, in his book and in his subsequent interview. You take that on in your latest column, talking about Beijing wanting another Trump term. Tell us about what you heard and read and, and what it may mean. Yeah, so, I mean, this book by, by John Bolton is pretty damning. Um, a big part of, of uh, uh, Trump's re-election strategy has been tough on, it was going to be tough on China. Um, he and, and Joe Biden were going to compete to see who could be toughest. And it turns out, uh, if the allegations in John Bolton's book, uh, book uh, are true, um, Trump was an absolute pushover for Xi Jinping. It's just fascinating. So, so okay, so what does China want at this point? Because part of me seems to think, and I think you write about this, Andy, is that, you know, some of this turmoil that President Trump is creating in the world and alienating of former U.S. allies or U.S. allies, to some extent, China likes some of that. Right. So, you know, so when, when, when China looks outwards um, across the Western Pacific, what they see is a string of U.S. alliances stretching from South Korea through Japan all the way down to Australia. And to the Chinese leadership, this is containment. It's there to, to hem China in, to frustrate its ambitions, to hold back its military um, uh, outreach, um, to, to bottle up its blue water navy and its submarine fleet. They want to weaken the alliance structure. And in that, this is their job number one. Uh, and from their perspective, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, our reporting from Beijing Bureau bears this out, um, the Chinese leadership think that Trump has done so much to weaken uh, uh, this alliance system 
um, by offending uh, U.S. allies, by engaging in trade disputes with them, by nickel and diming them on, you know, who's going to pay for U.S. forces based in South Korea and Japan, that he's weakening, that he's undermining the U.S. alliance system. And to them, that overrides all the concerns that they may have about how they're being treated on trade and investment and technology. So they want to see another four years of Trump. Hmm. So was this how it was going to be all along, Andy, that this was going to be sort of the alliance? How have you seen this evolve and develop uh, over the Trump presidency? Well, you know, the, 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 the approach to, to China that previous administrations had, had taken was to assume that taking on unfair Chinese trade practices and investment practices, doing something to roll back the, um, you know, uh, state capitalism in China, leveling the playing field required a multilateral approach that no single country could do it on its own. Hence this approach, which is embodied in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was for, you know, a bunch of like-minded countries to get together and to set high-level trade standards, um, you know, and force China, in a sense, to, to live up to these higher standards. Um, and the first thing he did uh, when he came to office, of course, he, he, got, he hates multilateral trading uh, relationships. He thinks that, that you know, they, they, have, they, have, they, they, they exist uh, in order to disadvantage the United States as he pulled, he pulled out of that. And he's been pulling out, of course, of international arrangements ever since from, you know, climate change to human rights and so on. And, and, and latterly, of course, defunding the WHO in the middle of a pandemic. You know, what I find interesting, we just have about a minute left, Andy, is that, you know, if you believe everything that John Bolton puts in his book, I guess the biggest thing, certainly with President Trump, when it comes to a lot of issues, but China in particular, it sounds like what he says, maybe perhaps behind closed doors with President Xi Jinping versus what he says publicly are often two different things. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that, that's right. And, and, you know, one of the most damning revelations of this book was, was him huddled with, with Xi Jinping, with nobody listening uh, except the interpreters, and telling Xi Jinping that building the internment camps in, uh, in Xinjiang, which hold up to a million or more uh, Uyghur Muslims, was, quote, exactly the right thing to do. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, but the Bolton's point throughout all this is that essentially Trump was, was ready to give away all, any and all American interests around national security, around human rights, in order to secure this trading uh, agreement uh, with China. In other words, everything for him was transactional. Right. Yeah. And I think it's something important. You know, we were talking with Josh um, Wingrove earlier at Bloomberg News about, you know, what do we need to know about Bolton's book as voters and as Americans? And that, I think, what Andy just pointed out is certainly a big point to take away from all of this. Andy Brown, always love checking in with you. Andy is, of course, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy on the phone in New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. Jim Lowell is back with us. He's Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments. They're based in Newton, Massachusetts, and we find him on the phone uh, on this Monday, and they've got uh, over $5 billion in assets under management. Hey, Jim, nice to have you back with us. How are you? I am doing fine. Thank you for asking. And I know you're doing well because I listen to your show on a regular basis. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. We get a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> Working from home can do that. <laughs> so which camp do you think makes more sense? I mean, it's just, I feel like there's such a struggle in the markets right now. There's a focus on the reopening and maybe some of the, you know, green shoots, dare I say, of things that start to sound like we're moving to reopen and are reopening. And then there's those spike in cases. And I, I do wonder how that slows down any economic momentum that we ultimately have right now. Well, it clearly hasn't done so yet, but it absolutely has uh, greater than sort of a moderate probability to do so. If we see reopenings trigger enough of a second wave to then spike up the number of reclosings, not just in terms of onesie twosie uh, you know, restaurants, but in terms of states taking uh, necessary action, that could that could unsettle the markets for a little bit. But overall, the market learned a very difficult but very swift lesson, uh, which wound up by March 23rd, uh, feeling as if the, the world really had had come to a standstill, and the world had, but the market got up and ran, and really has been running ever since. So. We think this is a, a perfect time to stay diversified, certainly disciplined. Um, we definitely think that the medical data will trump any sort of economic data, earnings data in the, in the very near term. But there again, we've already seen some good May data, some tentative June data that suggests that we may be moving from the worst of times to at least less worse ones. And so long as the second wave isn't dramatically bigger than, than the first, uh, I think uh, investors will do well to hold on to their best ideas through through thick and thin emotional headlines. And Jim, I mean, we are starting to see this pattern emerge, it feels like, and we're starting to see it here uh, in the tri-state area. And I dare say you're starting to see it up in Boston and the Boston area as well of people are just candidly tired of being cooped up. They want to get out and there's a whole theory of just calculated risk in many ways that people are able to or willing, I guess, to embrace in order to get on with it. And it feels like that's one of the things that investors are ultimately betting on. Well, that's an excellent point. And the the behavioral aspect to to the ways in which investors and traders move in the markets and move the markets is certainly always a fascinating topic, clearly playing out here. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, as human beings, we're not designed to stay in panic mode for all that long. And I would say that what has happened over the last two and a half months is that we did a very good job in the in in the uh, in the front uh, weeks and the front months. But now I think people are willing to risk maybe even getting sick. They are focused on, I think, the need to uh, to, to to fight for their freedom more than perhaps uh, a flight from the virus. The problem is the virus hasn't gone anywhere and yeah. is, of course, going to come back likely with a vengeance and flu season. So this is this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. But, man, it's awfully hard to stay indoors when the sun is shining and the beach is beckoning. 
Well, and it's interesting because we had a story on the on the terminal today, Jim, that just talked about how the stay-at-home trades have come roaring back. I mean, I'm looking at a name, since you listen to us, you know we talk about it a lot, Peloton. I mean, I think this stock is trading at its highest level. I mean, and it's had quite a bump, you know, and this is certainly one of those names that has benefited from everybody being at home. And not everybody can afford a Peloton, but a lot of folks who are working from home can. And as they want to work out, they're embracing that. And of course, you know, Peloton increasingly also, speaking of embracing, embracing kind of an online platform at the same time and expanding their audience. And I do wonder whether it's, you know, Netflix or Zoom or Peloton, um, you know, or Spotify or Drop, like, I don't know, is there some that you're seeing that makes sense to, you know, kind of trend into? Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. It, it is technology and technology that's adaptive and capable of being adopted by uh, a greater cadre of the workforce, which is going to be staying home, if not full time, at least part time, I think, for years to come. And certain segments of the workforce are likely to stay back at home uh, more than others, especially as you uh, go up the, the age chain. I myself am 60. I'm very happy to be here at home with all of my screens all of my Zoom meetings. I don't think we've ever worked harder to advise our investments uh, in part thanks to Zoom. We are really uh, looking at the market, analyzing, researching, engaging with our clients almost seven days a week. So I think it has unleashed, uh, this virus has unleashed uh, almost an exponential growth in terms of productivity for those whose uh, businesses can in fact be enhanced by, by technology. And so what do you worry about the most here, Jim, as we go through the summer? Is it the second wave or a continuing first wave? Is it the medical side? What What are the things that you think could disrupt what seems to be a, a fairly consistent trend here? So what I would say to that is I'm almost always worried about uh, a whole range of things. The, the coronavirus, second wave, flu season, clearly part and parcel of our concerns. We also know that this is going to be a very contentious election year. Uh, and as we get closer to November, um, the fear factor of those headlines will clearly have a say on, on daily momentum. And on the flip side of the elections, no matter who wins, you could see some fairly significant trading to the, to the up or downside, depending upon how things play out. Overall, we think the things that have been strong so far this year are likely to remain relatively strong, even though on the technology side, valuation concerns may be beginning to uh, pepper that pot. But nevertheless, we think technology, we think healthcare. Uh, we think if we look in terms of uh, the bond market and cash, we like total bond, especially um, total bond ETFs that are actively managed. There are a few out there that are quite good. Um, but we also think cash reserves continues to play a meaningful role. We, we always say there are three legs to the investment stool, stocks, bonds, cash, but it always takes the crisis to remind us about cash is that third leg. It's interesting you talked about the elections. Our Vince Signorella, uh, who you know is often a frequent voice on our show, and he said he put out a story there with the macro squawk and, and just said that the Biden fear, the markets were a little concerned about Joe Biden being president, but it seems like uh, investors are getting over that and that they're also noting that Trump's tweets are having less influence on the trade. So it's kind of interesting. So they are looking at it, you know, in terms of politically what's influencing the markets. Jim Lowell, thank you so much. Um, really a pleasure. Chief Investment Officer at Advisor Investments, $5 billion, over $5 billion in assets under management on the phone from Newton, Massachusetts. 
Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. 